The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Today, we're having a conversation with Dr. Richard LaFleur about the importance of healing gardens. We will discover how they promote physical, mental, and spiritual healing, as well as encourage self-care. Dr. LaFleur is an author, international speaker, researcher, and educator in the discipline of psychology at the University of West Georgia. He currently teaches various courses in psychology and integrated health care. This is episode 115, Stress to Serenity, How Healing Gardens Transform Lives and Promote Well-Being on the Garden Question Podcast with Dr. Richard LaFleur, an encore presentation and remix of episode 24. Richard, what is a healing garden? Well, Craig, that's a loaded question, but it's a great question. I have found a healing garden to be a space, a space in nature that allows us as humans to connect with nature. Even though it's called a healing garden, it doesn't have to be for a physical ailment. It could just be to heal your soul, heal your mind. By connecting with nature, connecting with plants, connecting with the environment, that in itself is considered a healing garden a space where you can go and be in nature and disconnect from everything that's going on around you and use that space to become one with nature. So does it have to be the same space every time? Oh, no. A healing garden or healing gardens can be different spaces. You may have a healing garden in your backyard, people who love to attend to plants. A healing garden can also be taking a walk in nature on a trail. It could be going for a hike in the North Georgia mountains. And it can also be as simple as going fishing where you sit and you feel the ground and touch dirt and feel the water. Those are all considered healing gardens today. In your notes, you mentioned subtopics of a healing garden. What does that mean? So the subtopics of a healing garden, when we conceptualize a healing garden, we automatically go to plants. Gardens typically mean some type of plant or shrubbery. Inside of a healing garden, you can also break it down into the stones that are part of that garden and the meaning of those stones. Some people may think of a stone as a rock, something to ground me, something to keep me in the place that I am. You can also think about a subtopic of what it means to be the dirt in a healing garden. In dirt, we find nutrition. That's what supplies the plants with all the nutrients that they need. Another subtopic might be water. What does water mean in a healing garden? It could be refreshing. It could be a way of washing away things from the past. It could be a splash of water could make me feel and think about things in a new way. Those are the subtopics of the healing garden. When you break down the subtopics, we can see what each component of that garden can mean to a person and how it might impact them depending on what they're going through. 
are you assigning it yourself as you in the garden what each side the rock or the water means to you or is there guidelines on that that's the beautiful thing about the subtopic notice i put in there pop culture in pop culture we get to assign what things mean to us and that's almost like breaking a social norm for most people they enjoy where someone tells them what to do or how they should experience certain things. If we were to get onto a roller coaster, before I ride a roller coaster, I might say, Craig, have you been on this before? And you might say, yeah, man, and it's awesome. It's exhilarating. Now I have this idea that I'm going to be on this exhilarating ride. Then I get on the roller coaster and I'm scared out of my mind. And my experience is so different from your experience. It's the same principle when we talk about the subtopics and how it applies to pop culture in the healing garden. Everything becomes the meaning I assign to it. So like I was saying about the rocks, the rocks might be grounding for me. The rocks might be a place where I can lean on when things are difficult. For someone else, the rock could be the crushing thing that caused them to be in the situation they are and they feel like they can't get out of it. So when we walk into a healing garden or a healing space, we get to bring our experiences to those healing gardens and those healing spaces and we get to assign what we want to assign to them, just like we do with pop culture today. We get to assign those meanings in those spaces. Is there a spiritual component to a healing garden? Oh, I think there's a strong spiritual component to a healing garden. When I think about spirituality, it takes me back to my belief system. It takes me back to what transcends me as a person. For me, it's God. And when I think about God and his creation, it takes me back to the beginning of time. In the beginning of time, it says that he created everything. He created the plants. He created the animals. When I walk into a healing garden, I'm walking into the creation of the one that transcends me, the one that I revere. The spiritual component in a healing garden is very powerful. And not only from the perspective of Judeo-Christian or from a God perspective, there are other experiences that people have in those healing gardens as well. When they see the vibrant colors or they touch the silkiness of a leaf it does something to them and it's it transcends their humanness and becomes a spiritual experience healing gardens they have a very strong spiritual component to them and without that component sort of negates the whole idea of what it means to heal and how we do heal from the different ailments of life so we're healing spiritually first then before we heal physically how does that work Healing happens in lots of different ways. Some people may need a physical healing, right? So they may be just physically tired. And that healing garden can be a place where they can just relax. That has nothing to do with spirituality. Mm -hmm. It can also be a place where we find spiritual healing, where we have a broken spirit. One of the things that I study and research is moral injury where we have an injured soul and the healing garden becomes a space for that. So it really depends on the person. It depends on their ailment and it depends what they're looking for from that healing garden. Someone may just need a space to relax and kind of just let go of a stressor. 
that's not necessarily tied to spirituality. It could just be tied to going through and being fatigued in life. It's hard to say if it's spiritual healing and then like, you know, physical or emotional. Sometimes it goes in different orders depending on the experience of the person. Could you give us examples of just rejuvenation versus maybe a, a greater spiritual healing need? You know, we're all dealing with the pandemic and a lot of people are just exhausted. They're exhausted from listening to the news. They're exhausted from the different debates that are going on. They're exhausted from the political arenas that we are all, we seem to be submerged and bathed in. So rejuvenation would be, you know what, I'm going to step out of what's normal to me. That's one of the things that I do. I step out when I walk into a trail and there are trails that are close to my house. Sometimes I just need to be rejuvenated from all that's going on. So the rejuvenation comes from walking in nature. The rejuvenation comes from actually breathing in the oxygen that the plants are producing while I'm walking through the woods or walking on a trail. That's a rejuvenation where I can disconnect from the stressors and go and find a place where I can actually rejuvenate myself. To rejuvenate is to find new life so that I can come back and do what I need to do. Spiritual healing is a bit different. Spiritual healing is where you are seeking an avenue to connect with God, to connect with the higher power, to connect with the universe, to connect with the environment that allows you to let go of the spiritual burdens that we carry sometimes. What I mean by that is sometimes we carry the weight of the world with us. We need something and someone greater than ourselves to either find a solution. We need someone or something greater than ourselves that we can say there is more to this life than what my experience is. When you walk into nature with that openness, sometimes it means just walking and opening your hands to know that there is something greater than you out there to feel and experience. Not just the rejuvenation, but like the input from that greater power that helps you transcend the difficulties of life. I have a, a student right now. He's working on, on his dissertation, and it's about spiritual experiences that changes a person's life. That experience can also happen in nature, happen in a healing garden where something transcends their humanness and it causes a change within them. Why is that important to our culture and society? Earlier civilizations, and usually when, it, when we talk about a healing garden, it was usually destined for royalty for them to have a place to go and walk, a place for them to go and think. A lot of our thinkers and philosophers, they know and they experience the power of just being away from everything that's going on. We are bombarded with so many things today. From a neurological perspective, it's important to find a space where the brain, the mind, doesn't have to be constantly on go. Why is it important for our culture today? Well, I can use just our smartphones. Our smartphones are designed to keep us fully engaged. The average person today spends over 15 hours a day on their cell phone, whether it's checking text messages, emails, or social media. That's a lot of time to pour into a device. Notice what's happening. You're not just staring at a screen, 
every time you stare at that screen, every time you swipe, you scroll, you're engaging the mind. And then there's the notion of the blue light being emitted from the screen that then causes the brain to think that we're always in this awake mode. One of the things we have seen as a result of that is insomnia. A lot of people are up late at night because they can't go to sleep because the brain is no longer in that mode where it goes to sleep when the sun goes down and wakes up when the sun rises. Now we have this constant flow of energy from our screens into our minds that causes the circadian rhythm to be out of sync. When you have a healing garden, you can disconnect from that phone and you can walk into nature. You can walk into your garden space. And that's what the ancient civilizations did. They disconnected from the things that were distracting them. They walked into these beautiful spaces. That's why when you go you know, to places like Europe and England and Norway, you see these beautiful gardens, beautiful gardens. I'm thinking of like the Biltmore uh, Mansion in the Carolinas. You know, it's built around these beautiful landscapes and the, the different textures and colors. Because back then they understood the power of stepping into nature to disconnect from the distractions. Back then, they didn't have cell phones, and we have cell phones today. You know just how engaging those phones can be. In our culture today, I think we need even more healing gardens so that we can disconnect and sort of find ourselves again and reconnect with nature and the environment so that we can give the mind, the brain, a chance to just stop processing so much. The problem with processing so much is that we keep our neurotransmitters at a level that they operate almost at full capacity constantly, which takes the mind out of the state of homeostasis. Homeostasis is the balance that we're always trying to find. When you raise those levels and you raise the balance within the mind, now you're creating a scenario where the mind is constantly on go. You know, I'm sure when talking to people, you've heard the phrase, man, I just can't turn my mind off. It's always going. The reason for that is because we're so engaged with our screens that the mind doesn't have a chance to turn off. When the mind is going so frequently, we get this hit of dopamine in the mind. And once you get that hit of dopamine, dopamine is the pleasure uh, neurotransmitter. So that's what makes us feel good. You get a hit of dopamine like when you eat a piece of chocolate, you get a hit of dopamine. When you do something that just makes you feel good, you get a hit of dopamine. Some people, they get a hit of dopamine when they eat certain foods, which is why it's hard to like stop eating that food, which is why we all love chocolate, right? We all want more chocolate. Well, when that dopamine is released into the brain and it's never tempered back down to its state of balance of homeostasis, well, that keeps the mind going. A healing garden allows us to disconnect from that and walk into a space where the mind can just stop and just relax. And we can give the mind a chance to come back down to homeostasis. Because we don't have as many healing gardens today around, we're seeing people more stressed out. We have more anxiety. In some cases, we have more depression. From a mental wellness perspective, the healing gardens are very necessary. I want to come back to that, but let me ask you this question first. You talk about screen time. So many times we read books now on our screen, maybe at night that are a paper version. Does that count as screen time? Is that hitting us with dopamines? Oh, yeah, because the minute you 
turn the phone on the minute you light the screen up, whether you're reading a book, watching TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, the minute the screen lights up, it emits the blue light that affects the circadian rhythm. And once that circadian rhythm is out of sync, you can no longer put the body into that state of sleep. Think about it like this. Have you ever walked into a movie theater and it's dark and as soon as you sit down, you start to yawn? Mm -hmm. That's because the mind is tricked in that moment. Wait, there's no light in here. There's no sun in here. This must be sleep time. And the body begins to prepare and release melatonin in the system. And it sort of calms us down. When you fire up that phone or that tablet or your computer when you lay down in bed, yes, you might be ready for bed. You might think, okay, I'm just going to lay here and like scroll through for a few minutes or whatever. You're actually tricking the mind into thinking it's not time to go to sleep yet because the blue light is still affecting the circadian rhythm, which means melatonin is not being released in the system and you're delaying that process. The way our sleep works, we sleep in cycles. There are about nine cycles that happen when we lay down to go to sleep. You go from NREM, which is a non-rapid eye movement, to REM, where your eyes move rapidly behind the eyelids, and you go into a deep state of sleep. That's usually where we have what's called sleep paralysis. That's the deepest state of sleep. We go through that cycle, so we go into that deep sleep, and then we'd come back up. We'd sort of kind of wake up again. Then we'd go through the cycle one more time, which is why sometimes when you fall asleep, you might find yourself waking up. You might turn, grab a drink of water, and then you might turn around and just go right back to sleep. For some people, if that sleep cycle is interrupted with the light from the phone, say it's 10 o'clock and you lay down and your body's tired. Man, I'm really tired. I'm going to go to sleep. Well, let me just check one more email. You've just interrupted your sleep cycle, which means the body is now thrown off. That affects your sleep. Yes, reading a book on your phone at night, it's probably one of the worst habits we can have that would affect the rest that the body needs. How would you counteract that other than turning the phone off with a healing garden? Do you, would it be better to walk in your garden at night or something like that? Actually, that's a great point. Of course, we want people to be safe walking outside. Before you go to sleep, it might mean you just kind of open your back door or open your front door and just take a look at your plants. If you have a garden space to walk that's safe and well lit, you might want to just walk out there and just enjoy the garden for a second before you go to sleep. Or you might have plants inside of your house. That might be a time to kind of just water the plants and make sure they're doing okay. Some people have conversations with their plants. They believe that it affects the plant because it is a living thing. Instead of firing up the phone, engaging with nature in some way might be the way to go. I was recently in the Pacific Northwest, went up to a farm up there and spent a few days. At night, we would go and just walk the farm. I found it to be very relaxing under the moonlight. Walk for about 10 minutes and then once we got back, I noticed that I was pretty tired. I was ready to go to bed. The cool thing while I was there, we were in this town called White Salmon, about 3,000 feet above sea level. There was no cell phone signal up there. Even if I wanted to turn my phone on, it was pointless because it literally said no service. I found that I got some really good sleep by not engaging with my phone at night. How long did it take you to get over that, though? Were you still wanting to constantly check your phone during that time? 
No, actually, I was very shocked that after like the second night, I was not interested in in checking my phone. Being up there, I didn't even turn my phone on. I didn't check text messages. We went down the mountain a couple of times, and that's when I engaged with my phone. But once I got to the place where there was no service, I actually turned it off. And I found it very liberating (laughs) (laughs) to not have my phone and not engage with technology that way. Get the most out of a healing garden. It'd be best to turn your phone off when you go into the garden. Oh, definitely. I don't think we should ever walk into that healing garden with our phones. We have like the botanical gardens in Atlanta and they have lots of different displays and that can be considered a healing garden as well. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might want to take, you know, some pictures to remember your time there and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's pointless to go to a beautiful space like that and just walk around constantly on your phone. That's missing the point. Mm -hmm. That's missing the point of being in a healing space, a healing garden, and allowing those beautiful creations to just speak to our souls. I mean, we are living beings as well. It's a beautiful way to connect. I would say that will be time to disconnect, put the phone away, walk, touch, and smell, take in from a sensory perspective the beauty of a healing garden. The point I wanted to come back to now is you say we don't have many of the healing gardens that we once had or we don't have enough or what do we need to do to remedy that? One thing about Georgia and the city of Atlanta, I think we're considered one of the greener cities in the United States because we have lots of parks. We have lots of state parks and national parks as well. We have lots of waterfalls and hiking trails. I live pretty close to a really popular hiking trail. I think we have those spaces that are available. I think we can do even better with our healing gardens and be more intentional with our healing spaces. Even though we might have a lot of construction going on and there's nothing wrong with that, even inside of those projects, I think it's important to factor in. So what about maybe a space that we can put a garden that could either be a community garden where people can come together because... One of the beautiful things about a healing garden is that it creates a sense of community. That's where people can gather and take care of the plants that are there. There are lots of examples, other countries where the garden is sort of like the meeting space. I know there is one in South Georgia that they use as a form of therapy where people come and they kind of work together in a community. They use that as part of the therapeutic intervention to help with anxiety and depression. Being more intentional and more purposeful with healing gardens, I think, would make a major difference in our society today. And not just put it as a byproduct or let's go and find a grant to build a garden. I think healing gardens, healing spaces, they ought to be factored in in whatever projects, building projects, expansion projects are going on. One of the places we see this happening is in many hospitals are actually creating a space within the hospital that's a healing garden as well. I know a lot of VAs have done that too. Mm -hmm. We need more. I will always be an advocate that we need more healing gardens. That's where I've always heard them in context with is with hospitals. And now I'm hearing it more with like at your home or community. How do you make a regular garden a healing garden? Are there certain things that make it a healing garden versus just a regular garden? There are two questions. The first one is in the hospital setting, they've been creating these spaces that are considered healing spaces or healing gardens. 
when we go through deep traumatic events or we have loved ones in, in the hospital or even people that are in the hospital because of an ailment, those healing gardens become a place to disconnect from the ailment, from the trauma, and it gives a moment of respite so that healing can actually take place. There are lots of research articles out there now that talks about the importance of using a healing garden as a way to promote physical healing as well, because we know that when the body is in a restful state, it can replenish itself, which is one of the reasons why sleep is so important. Sleep allows us to rest, and when we rest, the body can heal itself. That's how our muscles heal. That's how our immune system heals. Someone that's in the hospital that's going through a procedure or had a serious ailment, being able to go to that garden space and just be with the plants and be with nature promotes healing in the body. And then the second part of that is when we talk about the community or the home garden, you know, what makes it a healing garden? A healing garden is simply a space that you create. You can plant whatever plants you want. I always encourage my students when I teach this class to bring in some water, bring in some elements, bring in the rocks, bring in the dirt, maybe different colored dirt, bring in topsoil, bring in red clay, bring in different textures and play with the colors. Because when we as humans see different colors, they do something to the mind. Different colors emit different emotions. They emit different feelings. Play with those colors and allow the colors and the textures of the plant, of the leaf. Thinking about a healing garden that has roses. You have the thorns from the roses to protect it, but then you have the beauty of the rose when it blooms. That in itself, just pruning, trimming, and watering, giving the plants what it needs as a way of caring, is a way to create a healing garden. When we allow ourselves to be put in a position where we either care for something or care for someone, or we respect the things that we are observing or the people we are with, that in itself creates a healing space. For some people who don't have land in their backyard, it could just be having a small succulent in your house and taking care of that. Spending time just, you know, looking at it, observing it, and taking a moment to see what the plant is actually doing, that in itself could be very healing as well. You don't have to have these elaborate structures and these grandiose plants with pathways and labyrinths and all of that to have a healing garden. It could be just a plant. Kind of putting this together in my mind, you're talking about just having a plant, and with houseplants being on the upswing, they're really becoming popular again. Back when I got into this industry, houseplants were very popular, and then it took a downswing, and now it seems to be strong in the back on the upswing. People are connecting with those and just in their spaces in their apartments or their townhomes or whatever. Well, they don't have those outdoor spaces as available as you would if you lived in a subdivision or on acreage. Exactly. Just having a plant close by is enough for some people to be able to just sit and maybe just read a book and be in the presence of the plant. I'm not trying to be weird or anything. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just having that greenery or the flowers 
Of course, as we know from the biological perspective, plants, they create oxygen. So that means however many plants you have in your house, you're also increasing the flow of oxygen in your house. And we all know the importance of oxygen. That's that's what we need to survive. That's what they emit and we take in. And then we give them carbon dioxide. So it's a great space and a great thought, I think, to have a plant in your house. Talking about oxygen, one of the most favorite things that I've ever experienced is going into what most people call it a, a greenhouse, but it was a, actually a cold frame. And it was all sealed up during the winter and you've crammed all these plants inside. And you open that door up and you walk in and you oxygen hires. <laughs> oh, it's, it's so great. I guess you're infiltrated with oxygen. Yeah. Of course, there are all kinds of indoor plants, like you were saying, that you can have today. Someone might have just a small balcony or patio and you can have a couple of plants out there. I'm not saying, you know, we have to become these farmers, you know, fill up our backyards or apartments and condos with plants. A healing garden, the basics would be dirt and a plant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's that simple. Tell us about your healing garden. I have a few plants around my home. The way I use them, I have some at my mailbox. I would go and just get rid of the weeds and make sure they're, I don't even know what they're called, they're purple and pretty. <laughs> and then I have these shrubs in front of my home. They have these little red berries on them. You probably know the name of them too. You've, you, I'm sure you see them all the time. I would sometimes at night, I would walk out there before I go to bed actually. And in the stillness, I don't even turn the lights on. Just observe my plants or just, just see them. Just very calming. They're in a bed of rocks, so there are rocks all around them. And for me, that's very grounding. It's a reminder that no matter what's going on, I have to ground myself in who I am. That's my personal healing space. One of the things I'm going to be doing this fall in my backyard is I'm going to expand my healing space plant some more plants back there because I want to have a space, especially in the fall. I love the fall. I love being outside in the fall. I want to have a space in my backyard that I can just go sit and just either read a book, have a cool drink in my hand, or you know, if it's a cool night, chocolate or whatever, and just have that space to disconnect because I know that for me, my days are so busy that I need that time to disconnect before I end my day. The other place that's very important to me for a healing garden is actually being on a trail and finding new trails. I like trail running, and sometimes I just like to go walk. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I would run a trail, and then I would have to actually stop and walk because I see something that's interesting. Over the first part of the summer, I went up to Blue Ridge, and I found this trail. And I noticed while I was walking on that trail, it was a very different set of shrubbery that I'd never seen before. I saw some mushrooms that I'd never seen before. It was just neat to be in that space. It was a weekend that I needed to get away. There were lots of things going on and I needed a disconnect. And being in nature was the perfect disconnect. I went on that trail three times while I was up there that weekend. That became my healing space. The other place that I love going for a healing space For me, sometimes it's a sanctuary, a beautiful sanctuary. I know it may not be plants there, but walking into that sacred space, it's the same experience I have when I walk into a healing space. It can be a very sacred time for me because it's special to me. It being so special and being sacred becomes a spiritual moment for me to be in those spaces. I don't have to have a grandiose setup to have a healing space. Just the plants that I have at my house, 
I'm looking forward to the fall to putting some more in my backyard and expanding that than just being in nature. I love being in nature. Even in the humidity that we have here in Georgia, I still enjoy being on a trail. We may have touched on this before, but I'd like for you to reiterate it if we have already. But why is it so important for us to connect to nature? Because that seems to be the whole theme of what we're talking about is connecting ourselves back to the creation. Yeah, nature is very powerful. Nature is non-judgmental. Nature is very respectful. Nature is very kind to us. Nature is very peaceful. If we can find a way to return to the things that we are looking for, where we can find peace, we can find kindness, we can also find love, I think it's important for us to highlight the importance of that. As I'm thinking about nature, Nature can also be raging and angry, right? So we have, you know, hurricanes and we have storms and earthquakes and all of these disasters that happens. That's part of nature. And notice when those things happen, nature is not judging us. Nature is just doing what nature does. I guess the question that I have is, are we being kind back to nature and taking care of nature? Because When I go back to the beginning, one of the responsibilities of man was to take care of the earth, take care of the plants, take care of the animals. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're doing a great job at that. I think we can do more. I think we have allowed the busyness and the commonalities of life to just go by and we just sort of take nature for granted. And I think that's one reason why we are seeing so many different changes happening around us in the environment. Even though those things are happening, nature is not judging us. And nature still gives us the greenery. And even in the winter, when the trees loses their leaves, nature still gives us the beauty of that. Then again, the other part of, of nature that's important is it's the lessons we can learn from nature. Talked about the different seasons. Every plant goes through its seasons. We have annuals that they last all year long, but then we have some plants, they shed their leaves. We all get so excited for fall when the leaves change color. People drive hours to go see the leaves changing colors because it's so beautiful. It draws us in. We have to get all these beautiful pictures and shots and then we get all dressed up and we take these pictures because the, the mountains are so beautiful. That's the thing about nature that it's, it's beautiful, but it's not only beautiful when the leaves change colors or when there's snow on top of the mountain. It's also beautiful when they're green. And it's also beautiful when there are no leaves. And some of the lessons we can learn is how do we take in and judge beauty? The other thing we can learn is notice what happens even though the leaves might disappear in winter, the roots, they go deeper because the roots, they still have to sustain that tree. Sometimes we have to go through life and we go through difficult seasons in life. Sometimes we have to take a look at nature and say, how is nature handling this difficult season? And we know that those roots, they go deeper and they still bring nutrition to that plant, that tree. Sometimes we have to do that. We have to find what our grounding is. We have to find the deeper moments in life. We have to find what is my belief system and what do I believe? Why do I believe what I believe? Because when those storms come and I have to lose my leaves and I don't have to be as put together as everyone expects me to be, or even I expect myself to be sometimes, I know that that might be a time of growth for me, that I need to sort of sink my roots in and reground myself as a person. 
Nature, lots of lessons we can learn from it, lots of takeaways. It's very important for us to connect with nature so that we can reground ourselves as humans. Engages us in all of our senses, too. I mean, the sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing. It's really an emotional connection. You're very right about that. When we engage our major senses, that also sends information through the brain. If we're engaging in such a way, we can, like I said from from earlier, we can disconnect from the distractions and allow the things that we were created with to connect the things that were created. I think we're heading into a deeper way of being with each other. What's your earliest garden memory? I grew up in the Caribbean islands. My grandmother, she always had a garden, always. She either had uh, a vegetable garden and she always had either tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers. And I remember she planted corn. Our neighbor, they also had a garden that was close to our house. And I remember I would always go and try and like help do something. I was always trying to either water the plants. That's where I learned how to pick the weeds out. One year, my grandmother taught me how to plant the seed and got to see the seed germinate and then the little sapling that shoots up from the ground. From early on, I was probably six or seven. I remember being in the garden with my grandmother. Throughout the years, I remember my dad as well. He planted the same garden that she planted. He planted it one year, well, a few years actually. So I remember helping him with that. My mother always had flowers and different plants around the house. And of course, growing up in the Caribbean islands, the national plant was the hibiscus flower. We saw the hibiscus plant everywhere. And I remember walking home from school and we would always stop and smell the flowers. They were either red or pink, a few yellows uh, sometimes. I've always had this connection to gardens, even from my early childhood. As you get older and you go through your teenage years, it's not that important. The older I get, the more connected I am. But I also recognize that that connection started when I was a little boy. Do you have a funny garden story? When I was growing up in the Caribbean, my neighbor would always ask my mom to come and get me because I talked so much that she couldn't get her work done. My mother would always have to come get me. And so you have to leave them alone because they planted their garden. That's how they made their money. But I was so excited to be with them in their garden. And I would just go (laughs) talk their ear off. (laughs) Uh, What is your favorite plant? You know, Craig, I don't think I have a favorite plant. If I had to choose, I would choose the hibiscus flower. The hibiscus flower, obviously from my childhood, but... That's when I first understood like what cross-pollination was, because in the middle of the hibiscus was the long stem that sticks out from it. And that's where the bees and the different insects would go, and that's where they do their pollination. And there's a part of the hibiscus plant, like you can pull that stem out, and at the bottom of the stem, there was a sweet nectar that was in that as well. As a kid, we would pop that thing out and get that sweet nectar out of it. I always found it to be an interesting plant. I'm sure there are other plants you can do that with. It's the one that I remember having that sweet nectar. And walking from school, sometimes you would just just pop that thing out and all the way home that you'd have this thing sticking out of your mouth, sucking <laughs> on the nectar of the, from the hibiscus plant. Of course, today, I think you can find like hibiscus syrup now. You can find different products made out of the hibiscus plant today. Um, yeah. It's a very unique and a very beautiful flower. 
I love roses. I think roses are great. The thorns sometimes, I'm like, you know, why do we have to have the thorns? But I understand why. The hibiscus plant, it's such a delicate plant and the colors. Sometimes it would be like a very deep red or like a, a lighter version of a red with a variation of pink. And I know today you can do a lot of grafting and you know have all these different colors. The, the hibiscus plant, that would be my favorite plant. Next time I see a tropical hibiscus, I'm going to have to pop that stamen out. Yeah, you should, your stamen. That's what it's called. That's right, the stamen. You should try it. It's, it's really <laughs> sweet and it's delicious. <laughs> Why did you decide to pursue the psychology profession? Well, in my former life, I was a business administrator, and I think I just got tired of numbers. I noticed that people would always sit with me and tell me what's going on with them. I would never ask. They'd always tell me. And I knew the time was coming for me to make a change. Mm -hmm. And maybe if I'm a good listener, maybe I should check out this psychology thing. I've always been interested in how people think, how they behave. So I got into psychology and drove out to University of West Georgia one day and actually met with the chair of the department back then. His name was uh, is Dr. Rice. From my first class, I'm like, this is it. This is what I was designed to do. I did a master's and then my PhD and every level of psychology, it just felt right. I felt at home in psychology. This is what he created me to do, psychology. I'm all about psychology. Probably have had many influential people in your life. Who would you consider your most influential person professionally? Actually, I would start with, start with my mentor, who was the chair of the department back then, Dr. Rice. He always encouraged me, and we would have these really neat conversations, not only about psychology, but about life. Very wise man. He always spoke into my life. When I started working on my dissertation, he was such a great, steady hand to lead and help me create the structure and my research. And even to this day, we texted just a couple of days ago, he is still in my life, and and whatever I'm going through or whatever is going on, I can pick up the phone and call him and he would listen. He never judges. He just listens. And if I ask for advice, he would give it. If I don't, he'd just be a great listener. So I would say that his influence and his mentorship in my life has been very, very powerful. So that's both professionally and personally. But I have another mentor. His name is Dr. Mark Freeman up in Worcester, Mass. And professionally, he has definitely shaped my work. When I was done with my PhD, he said, there are only three people that are interested in your dissertation. You, your mom, and your chair. Nobody else is going to read that. <laughs> and actually, he was probably right. What he did was he allowed me the space to cure my dissertation and my PhD. He really helped and shaped my thinking in the philosophical side of psychology, but he also shaped the writing that I do with psychology. He's a brilliant writer, a great thinker. I remember the first day I took a piece to him. He uses purple pen. It was more purple than black when he was done with it. My ego was bruised. <laughs> I realized that he did that for a reason. Professionally, he has definitely shaped and influenced my professional life. And I've met some neat people along the way as well that are in psychology, and they spoke into my life in different ways. I would say that a few of them, I would consider a mentor, not as deep as Dr. Rice and Dr. Eman. They they spoke into my life in different ways and at different times. I've had quite a few of very strong influences, both professionally and personally. How did you get interested enough in healing gardens or you started teaching a class in it? 
My dissertation revolves around the topic of veteran reintegration when soldiers leave military life and they transition back into civilian life. A lot of the difficulties that they face. I know a lot of people think it's, well, you're done with that profession and now you're back and you kind of roll back into society. But a soldier, when they're in the military, they live a very different life to us civilians. When they leave to either be deployed or serve in their active role, our life as civilians move on. When they come back, they come back to a life that has moved on and it's no longer the same the way they left it. My research, I found that a lot of soldiers, they had a difficult time sort of finding that balance again. How do I reintegrate with my family? Because whomever the head of the household was while I was gone, they took care of everything. When I come back, what is my role? How do I fit in? How do my kids see me? Some uh, soldiers have a hard time coming back and going to school. So all of these moments in time become challenges for them. For those who don't know, 22 veterans commit suicide every day, mm. every day. That was an alarming number to me and got my attention. As I was continuing my research, I was looking at different forms of therapies that help veterans and allows them to find their way through the difficult moments that they're faced with. One of the things that I ran across was garden therapy called socio-horticultural therapy. I realized that there are a few places that offer this to veterans for them to find the healing that they needed. I did some more research and I realized that by them taking care of something other than themselves, it gave them a sense of purpose. For some veterans, it's taking care of plants. Some veterans, it's taking care of animals. Just having that connection with nature became very therapeutic. Being able to be a part of a garden, and a lot of times with veterans, these happen in community gardens where they create the space and then they get to enjoy the space. That became the catalyst for me teaching that course to understand the power of healing gardens. I knew gardens were important and they were powerful, but until my research, I didn't realize the healing power that they had. Mm -hmm. Through my research, I found out about it, and I did some more investigating and some more research on it. I started teaching the class about the importance and the power of the healing garden, but it all came out of my research and working with veterans. Are you seeing more veterans engaged now in gardening or taking advantage of the healing process in that, or what's the state of it now? We don't have many programs structured around the healing garden. That's one of the projects that I am working on now. How do we create a healing garden, especially like for the veterans on our campus? And I'm just getting a grant proposal together for that. We have green spaces on our campus, but it's not designed to be a healing space. It's just green spaces. When you have someone like a veteran or someone who's going through a difficult time or have gone through a traumatic event, it's important to be able to point them in the direction of, hey, here's something that you might want to incorporate in your life as well. Because most people don't know about Healing Garden. Most people don't know the power a garden holds and how it can help and facilitate healing. It's important to have them well-marked, well-defined so that people know where they are and what they do. I think in Douglas County, there are butterfly garden, which is really pretty, and that can be considered a healing garden too. Not a lot of people know that there's a butterfly garden in Douglas County. 
by finding, naming, identifying these spaces, I think more people would be engaged and more people would be likely to engage with the garden and find the healing. That How do we engage in a healing garden? It's simple. You don't have to go out and spend a lot of money. I think there is something to be said to the term playing in the dirt again. As kids, we enjoyed playing in the dirt. Playing in the dirt kind of gave you freedom, right? It's like kind of playing in the sand as well. When you're playing in the sand and in the dirt, you can create. Mm -hmm. You can build a sandcastle. In the dirt, you can shape it and mold it and form it into different things. There is some power in just allowing your hands to connect with the earth and feel the texture and feel the grittiness of the sand or the dirt or whatever it is you're putting your hands in. The way we engage with the garden is by digging and planting something, something that's going to grow, knowing that we are responsible for that seed and that we have to go out every day and make sure it has the right sunlight, make sure it has the right water, make sure that there are no pests around it, that nothing is going to come and just devour it. And we get to protect it. And then we get to see it grow. So by engaging in the garden means to actively engage with the plants. I mentioned earlier, it's about touching the leaf. Can you, you said this as well, engaging the senses. We engage in the garden by engaging with our senses, our sight, our touch, our smell, in some cases, our taste. Even by listening, you might hear the bee buzzing as it pollinates one and goes to the other. Engaging in the garden means being present, setting aside all distractions and just walking into that space and allowing the garden to kind of just feed your soul, just like the ground is feeding the garden with its nutrients, allowing the beauty of the garden to feed our souls. Engaging with the garden, is, it's about doing, it's about being very aware, being conscious of the space that you're in. And it's also about listening to what the garden is saying to you, because we talked about rejuvenation and being refreshed. Sometimes it's just sitting among the plants and you're able to just let go of everything and have a moment just to yourself, you and the plants, you and the dirt, and allow yourself to be lost in that moment. Richard, tell us how people may connect with you. The easiest way to get a hold of me is through email, which would be rlafleur, L-A-F-L-E-U-R, at westga.edu. I also have a profile on Linktree. You can search Dr. R. Lafleur on Linktree, and that gives you all of my connections via social media. This has been Episode 115. Stress to Serenity, How Healing Gardens Transform Lives and Promote Well-Being on the Garden Question Podcast with Dr. Richard LaFleur, an encore presentation and remix of Episode 24. Thank you, Richard. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.